Kenyan elections are rarely straightforward. Kenya's previous presidential election in 2017 took two attempts after the result of the first was annulled by Kenya's Supreme Court. The presidential elections of 2013 and 2007 were also disputed, and in 2007, dreadful post-election violence left hundreds dead and thousands displaced. Kenya's 2022 presidential election, the results of which were announced this week, has in many respects conformed with recent tradition. It was close, it is being disputed, and Raila Odinga lost and claims he didn't. Odinga, a former prime minister, was taking his fifth tilt at the top job. He was extremely narrowly defeated by another fixture of Kenyan politics, William Ruto, who was serving as deputy president to the previous incumbent, Uhuru Kenyatta. Despite his establishment-seeming resume, President-elect Ruto pitched himself as the scrappy outsider, leaning heavily on his humble beginnings as one of Kenya's classic hustlers, in his case as a roadside chicken seller. It didn't hurt Ruto's case that the president for whom he deputised endorsed his opponent. Kenyatta and Odinga are both members of political dynasties. Ruto voters had a lot to forgive. Persistent allegations of corruption, an indictment eventually dropped by the International Criminal Court over the election violence of 2007. But forgive, just enough of them did. Can Ruto see off Odinga's legal challenge? If so, what are Ruto's domestic priorities? And how will he position Kenya on the world stage? This is The Foreign Desk. One hopes indeed that we will increasingly see elections in Kenya that are not fought along ethnic lines. Uh, We saw very scattered voting patterns. We saw him win incredibly in the president's own backyard, in the president's own polling station, his own county. And so it was a remarkable achievement. One hopes that he'll steer Kenya increasingly in that direction. And one hopes, yes, indeed, that he governs for the whole country rather than for a group. People like the way he talks. They like the way he rolls up his sleeves and talks about his very humble backgrounds in the informal economy selling peanuts and chicken. And it's something that appeals to many people here who are working. So Mr. Ruto was really able to cast himself as the underdog who basically presents a break from the people who have been ruling the country for the last 10 years and longer. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, by Navina Kotur, a multimedia journalist based in Nairobi, and by Maruthi Mutiga, Programme Director for Africa at the International Crisis Group, also in Nairobi. Navina, I'll start with you. It has been a few days now since the result was announced. How do things seem in Nairobi now? Has the dust settled? I think the dust has actually settled a bit. As you said, it was a very tense week with the announcement being delayed and delayed on Monday. Then there were scuffles ahead of the announcement. But so far, things, I think, are going slowly back to normal. The shops have opened. I think everyone was very wary about what would happen after the announcement. And what I think most people are waiting for is to see whether Mr. Odinga, who has announced a challenge, will indeed challenge this result in court. And I think we will know the latest by Monday. Well, Marithi, I did want to ask about that, about how solid Odinga's challenge appears to be, because obviously this was a very close race. Obviously, he and his camp are trying 
to kick up an amount of doubt about the result. And we do have this strange subplot of four of seven electoral commissions disowning the outcome. So is it possible Odinga does actually have a case? Well, as you said, it was a very close election, just 200,000 separating them from nearly 14 million votes, roughly 1.7% between them. So it was very close. It's not surprising that the result is being challenged. Two things. One is that we know that Kenyan courts have a history and capacity to annul elections in 2017 for the first time on the continent. They did throw out an election. And it's important to remember they did that on a technicality. It was a procedural rather than substantive issue about the numbers. So you can never rule out that they potentially might be able to persuade the judges again uh, to rule against the Electoral Commission. Uh, But we have to give credit to the Electoral Commission this time to the extent that they seem to have been radical transparent. Within hours of the vote, they put all the provisional results online. Anybody with a calculator could crunch the numbers. So they seem to have learned lessons from 2017, but you can never say never. Navina, what sense do you get of how much support Odinga has in either Kenya's media or among Kenya's public? Because just to return to that question I was asking Marithi, to the outside observer at least, that one thing of you know a majority of electoral commissioners saying at best we're not sure about this would seem like a pretty major deal. It may seem like a pretty major deal, and I think we have to see how he argues this in court. However, there are people who have independently tallied along as the Electoral Commission was counting the votes. They came up with very similar results. And I think so far we've seen very few people really coming forward and kind of backing that argument because the press conference Mr. Odinga gave earlier in the week wasn't seen as very convincing. And I think we really have to see what the legal challenge is going to be in detail. But so far, there aren't that many people throwing themselves behind him with this assertion that the election might have been rigged. Marithi, in terms of the media coverage, do you get the sense that there is an amount of nervousness in the media, thinking back to memories of 2017 and 2007 especially, and they don't want to be seen to be stirring anything up? Are they trying, do you think, to report this calmly? So, yes, uh, the media coverage is fairly restrained, fairly calm. You know, it's been one of the most peaceful election campaigns we can remember. And even the drama on Monday when the results were being announced and there were scaffolds, as Navina mentioned, we didn't really see elevated tensions in the country. So I think elections in Kenya are increasingly becoming banal. Even the turnout was not as high as, as in the past, which shows you that people don't really see it as a life and death matter. So I think that's important. And just to add to Navina's point, it really does look quite dramatic. And I can imagine to an outside observer to see the divisions in the Electoral Commission. But that's very common in Kenya. In past elections, the control of the Electoral Commission is very contentious. It's very political. In 1997, the opposition threatened to boycott because of the composition of the Electoral Commission. In 2007, we saw a very controversial appointments which helped to trigger the crisis. In 2018, again, three commissioners resigned. So it's par for the course when it comes to Kenyan elections. And Navina, what have we heard from President-elect Ruto specifically about Odinga's dispute of the result? Is he engaging with this argument or just ploughing serenely ahead as the President-elect? 
I think Mr. Ruto is very confident that he has won the election on the day of the announcement, after the scuffles, after the delays, after the embarrassment of having to lead foreign diplomats and other members of the public out of the building because the situation looked a bit on edge. He came on stage, he gave a very confident speech. We do not have the luxury of time to waste. We must get on, roll up our sleeves, tighten up our belts, pull up our socks and begin the process of delivery of our commitments to the people of Kenya. He said that the IABC, the Electoral Commission, had done a very good job and that he was prepared to basically start work. I think it's unclear at the moment when he will be sworn in. He seems a bit like Teflon when it comes to these allegations. And I think it's also very important to say that from what I have seen, the allegations Mr. Odinga is making are about the process and about the work the Electoral Commission has done. He's not really attacked Mr. Ruto yet directly. And I think that's a very important thing to remember. So with Odinga's continuing challenge then, Marithi, is it a fair analysis to think, look, this is quite an old man who's had a fair few goes at becoming president of Kenya. He probably realises this is his last shot, so he's just making the most of it. So there will be Kenyans that are exasperated, that really want to move on, that, you know, the schools have reopened, people want to get on with their lives to have more certainty. But I think to be fair to Odinga, it's really important to remember that we've always made the point that election results should be challenged in the courts rather than on the streets. And so there will be some people that feel exhausted, tired, want to move on, but it's right that he's challenging this in court. We don't know what his chances are. I'm sure a lot of people just want uh, this settled, but it's the right thing he's doing by going to court. Of course, some would have preferred a concession. Navina Kotur and Maritho Matiga, thank you both for the moment. We'll have more from you later. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. President-elect Ruto, when, and perhaps if, he is sworn in, will obviously face no shortage of domestic concerns. But he also has to maintain Kenya's delicately poised position on both the regional and global stages. For a look at Kenya's foreign policy priorities, I'm joined from Nairobi by Dr Moses Onyango, a politics and international relations lecturer at the United States International University, Africa. Moses, Let's start with some basics. When we think about Kenyan foreign policy, are there any core assumptions to it? The Kenyan foreign policy is anchored on five pillars, which they always look at and directs their activities. The first one is the peace diplomacy. Second, economic diplomacy. Third is the diaspora. And then fourth, environment. And fifth, culture. So basically... These particular pillars inform Kenya's foreign policy and, of course, the activities in the external environment and domestic environment. So does Kenyan foreign policy really change all that much from one government to the next? Ideally, it doesn't. The administration that comes in tends to shape the foreign policy based on those particular five pillars. For example, the outgoing administration of Uhuru Kenyatta made ICC, the International Criminal Court, its focus. And of course, if you look at that particular ICC, it was anchored on Pan-African to protect the African against the Western banter in terms of looking at the criminal activities in Africa. 
If those five pillars are constant, then they're presumably applied to particular challenges as they come and go. So for an incoming Kenyan president, what would they be regarding as the specific foreign policy challenges that they face now? Basically, the incoming administration is a continuation of the administration that is leaving. They only differed in terms of who would run for presidency. But in terms of their focus on foreign policy, I don't see much change because both the president who is outgoing and the deputy president who is president-elect now were faced by ICC problem. So they rallied African leaders in terms of pan-Africanism to protect themselves. So I don't see much change. And the later administration of the outgoing presidency focused on infrastructure development. The incoming president-elect has promised to change the focus from infrastructure development to more of empowering individual small businesses. So that might be the difference in terms of economic activities, but not major. Looking to Kenya's near neighbours, does Kenya have any history of playing any overt or indeed covert role in the conflicts in the countries around it? Is Kenya's policy towards those conflicts basically trying to stay out of them and keep them on the other side of the border? Kenya has always pursued peace cooperation in the region, covertly most of the time, in terms of like quietly supporting South Sudan, not openly supporting it, but of course offering its space as a peace mediator. Overtly, Kenya has been engaged in Somalia, where its forces moved into Somalia, and then of course later on incorporated in the African Union, AMISOM. But mostly it has been as a peacemaker. Kenya contributes a lot of peacekeeping forces in the region. So it has been doing that a lot, except for Somalia, it has gone overtly. I know the conflict in Ukraine is a very long way away from Kenya, but there has been a lot of talk, as you will know, about the apparently slightly equivocal or neutral view that a lot of African countries have taken of it due to, you know, historical links and economic ties with Russia. But quite early on in the conflict, as you'll know, Kenya's ambassador to the United Nations, Martin Kimani, gave an absolutely thunderous speech in defence of Ukraine, framing it very much as a country defending itself from imperial conquest. Mr. President, this situation echoes our history. Kenya and almost every African country was birthed by the ending of empire. Our borders were not of our own drawing. They were drawn in the distant colonial metropoles of London, Paris, and Lisbon, with no regard for the ancient nations that they cleaved apart. At independence, had we chosen to pursue states on the basis of ethnic, racial, or religious homogeneity, we would still be waging bloody wars these many decades later. Instead, we agreed that we would settle for the borders that we inherited. Not because our borders satisfied us, but because we wanted something greater forged in peace. We further strongly condemn the trend in the last few decades of powerful states, including members of this Security Council, breaching international law with little regard. Multilateralism lies on its deathbed tonight. 
Let me conclude, Mr. President, by reaffirming Kenya's respect for the territorial integrity of Ukraine within its internationally recognized borders. Was he speaking, do you think, for Kenya's government as a whole there, or was he off on a bit of an adventure of his own? The Kenyan embassy in the United States has always spoken in consultation with the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And what Ambassador Kimani said was a reflection of Kenya's foreign policy. Kenya has, since independence, up to now, has always been very careful in terms of its relationship with the outside world. It has always declared itself as a member of the non-aligned, but of course traditionally mainly aligned to the traditional ideological friends, the United States and the United Kingdom. But since 2002, with China changing its policy, looking at economics and capitalism, rather than just being purely communist, Kenya has pursued a careful, pragmatic relationship with the East in terms of protecting its economic interests. So when it comes to the issue of Ukraine, Kenya has always balanced its relationship based on that particular balancing act, whereby it sort of keeps its friendship with its traditional allies, but also protecting its economic interests where need be. So it supports non-interference, but at the same time does not want to destroy its economic link with the outside world. Just as a final thought then, because you mentioned China, do you anticipate that balancing act you were talking about starting to tip gradually further towards China? Because China has become more and more invested, literally, in Kenya. I believe China is now Kenya's most substantial trading partner. Is that going to have an effect on Kenyan foreign policy, do you think? Let's look at facts. China has invested a lot in terms of infrastructure development in Kenya and Africa. But if you look at statistics, China is the least investor in Kenya. If you look at the economic survey of 2020, UK has 13.5 investments in Kenya, United States 10.3%, and China only stands at 0.5. So even though China is contributing a lot in terms of infrastructure development, they are not pushing their companies to come and invest in Kenya. Kenya quickly borrowed the economic free zones. The concept was borrowed from China. But if you look at all those economic free zones that Kenya has developed with the support of China, very few Chinese industries have invested in them. So Kenya remains a big trade partner with the US and UK and European Union. Again, European Union is the highest development partner in terms of human development in Kenya. So when we look at statistics, the reality is actually different. So Kenya still remains a great trade partner with European Union, UK and US, and its trading with China remains a lot in terms of infrastructure and it's all borrowed funds from China. Moses, thank you for joining us. That was Dr. Moses Onyango of the United States International University, Africa. Do stay with us. 
You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Still with me are Navina Kotua, a journalist based in Nairobi, and Maruthi Mutiga of the International Crisis Group in Nairobi. In this second part of the show, I want to focus on what the new president will need to get to grips with. But if we proceed on the assumption that it will be William Ruto, and I'll start with you on this, Maruthi, if you have to try and explain William Ruto's career and character very briefly, how would you sum him up? Strikingly charismatic, with a record that's quite mixed, including an indictment at the International Criminal Court. One of the most talented politicians in Kenya, uh, very, very able to build coalitions, able to strike a chord with the man on the street. And so he has run a very clever campaign. He decided to make it issue-based rather than trying to rally people around ethnic lines. And he has beaten a remarkably strong alliance, including the uh, president and the opposition leader. So very, very capable. You know, you hinted at some of the challenges he'll face, and those are immense, including managing expectations. He has struck a chord with ordinary people, but they expect um, the cost of living, for example, to go down. We are in a very difficult environment environment around the world and in Kenya as well, and he will face a huge task managing those expectations. Naveena, just to follow up a couple of those points, describing his record as mixed is certainly one way of putting it. And why didn't the various allegations that have been made against William Ruto over his long career in Kenyan politics, and some of them are pretty sensational, the ones about corruption, about land grabbing, and especially being charged by the International Criminal Court over previous post-election violence, even though those charges were eventually dropped, you would think that between all that, that seems like a fairly career-ending burden. Yes, William Ruto has quite extraordinary allegations against him. The charges by the International Criminal Court that were later dropped because of voter intimidation, the court said, are probably the most striking, but also the corruption and land grab allegations, as you said. Mr. Ruto obviously says that none of the corruption allegations have been proven in court, that they are politically motivated and that they have been spread by the sitting president, Uhuru Kenyatta. I think he is... He's a fairly young politician who entered politics at a very young age, who's had an incredible career. And I think the fact that he decided to break with the ruling elites and the ruling families, the Kenyattas and Mr. Odinga, his successor, and basically run his own campaign has really benefited him. And people like the way he talks. They like the way he rolls up his sleeves and talks about his very humble backgrounds in the informal economy me selling peanuts and chicken. Let nobody tell you you cannot make it because you come from Todonyang or Kitmikai or Vanga. If they try to tell you that story, tell them what about William Ruto who sold chicken at a railway crossing and today He is the Deputy President of the Republic of Kenya. Something that appeals to many people here who are working, the majority of Kenyans are still working in the informal economy and who haven't really seen much progress in the last 10 years. And I think that's why he was able to mobilize. And I think on the other hand, the sitting president and the alliance, Mr. Kenyatta struck with Odinga, didn't really help them to mobilize voters. I think many people see these 
too as corrupt and power hungry. So Mr. Ruta was really able to cast himself as the underdog who basically presents a break from the people who have been ruling the country for the last 10 years and longer. Marithi, to go back to something you mentioned, this fact that he campaigned or was seen to be campaigning more on policies than on ethnic loyalty. Just how unusual was that in Kenyan politics? And do you think, perhaps even hope, that that gave some indication of how he intends to govern? Yes, so he did it partly out of necessity because he had all these dynastic politicians, important ethnic leaders essentially rallying an alliance and cobbling one against him. And so he did it partly out of necessity. One hopes indeed that we will increasingly see elections in Kenya that are not fought along ethnic lines. Uh, We saw very scattered voting patterns. We saw him win incredibly in the president's own backyard, in the president's own polling station, his own county. And so it was a remarkable achievement. One hopes that he'll steer Kenya increasingly in that direction. And he needs to because, you know, he doesn't come from the biggest ethnic group, but he has really strong mandate despite the uh, small margin between them. And one hopes, yes, indeed, that he governs for the whole country rather than for a group. Marithi, you mentioned something earlier about President-elect Ruto having to manage expectations, and it strikes me that one of the challenges, well, he's got a couple of challenges there. One is that it's not like he is this new and exciting and insurgent figure who's come from out of a clear blue sky. He's, a, in his own way, a very establishment politician. He's been in Kenyan politics forever. And he now finds himself leading an extremely young country. 65% of Kenyans are under the age of 35. Young people not perhaps necessarily known for their patience. How much wiggle room do you think he's going to get? How much understanding do you think there is of the fact that Kenya's various issues are not something that can be solved in a week by one man picking up a phone? It's a good point, Andrew. And we have to remember that it's not just that Kenya has such a debt pile and so very limited fiscal space, uh, but like many other countries, it's just dealing with almost a triple shock in the region. A terrible drought, the COVID lockdowns and the effect on the economy, and of course, the Ukraine crisis. But There will be very little sympathy from unemployed Kenyans, for example, about those issues. He's a great communicator. He'll need to very skillfully explain that, you know, it's a very difficult environment. Change won't come immediately. I suspect he'll try and blame uh, the incumbent Kenyatta, partly because he's basically been sidelined for the last five years and, and, you know, has consistently claimed that Kenyatta is to blame with Odinga for all of Kenya's wars. He will have a very awkward time because he said as well that, you know, the high cost of living has nothing to do with the Ukraine crisis, it's mismanagement, but now he will squarely uh, be responsible for helping people's lives improve. He might be able, because he's run a very clever campaign and he's promised that he wants to shift uh, from big ticket infrastructure spending, for example, to more retail spending, bottom-up economics, more investment in agriculture and the livestock industry, for example, he might be able by reordering priorities. For example, a lot of youth not to vote in this election, but it will be a very difficult balancing act. Navina, there's a related question there as well that something that any national leader needs as well as the patience of their people is the optimism of their people and do you get the sense that this was an optimistic vote cast by Kenyans did they vote for their new president or were people largely voting against the other guy I think there is a lot of 
not negativity, but ordinary Kenyans, I think, are quite exasperated with politics. They feel that politicians here are basically just working for themselves, that there's a lack of public service and lack of service to the Kenyan people, that infrastructure investments are made when they make sense for a sitting president, but not necessarily when they make sense for people who are cut off from main infrastructure links. So I don't think it was a very enthusiastic vote for Mr. Ruto. I think people just were fed up with the Kenyatas. They are very wary of this handshake between Mr. Kenyatta and Mr. Odinga, and they decided to go with Mr. Ruto and see what happens. Just a final thought then, Marithi. We are coming to the end of our time. And just to pick up that idea of seeing what happens, which is obviously what we all now have to do, there's possibly some grounds for optimism in the sense that, and I'm looking for some wood to touch, that so far the aftermath of this election has been relatively peaceful and orderly. But if we think ahead a bit to the potential end of President-elect Ruto's first term, what would be a definition of success? I'd say that, yes, this is a moment when I think we are seeing Kenyan democracy being consolidated, and that's really important. I would say that if he respects the fact that Kenyans stood with him, voted for him, despite the very strong opposition from the system and from so-called deep state and from the Kenyatas and Odingas, I hope he regards that mandate as really an endorsement of Kenyan democracy, doesn't go after institutions, respects, for example, an independent judiciary, which was also very strong in creating the space for the election. I think that if he can show that he's shifted economic priorities to lift up the lives of ordinary people, that would be really important. And then finally, if he can continue Kenyatta's good work on the foreign policy front, he may be regarded as a domestic failure. But on the foreign policy front, he was uh, instrumental in getting Kenya to try and bring the parties together in Ethiopia civil war to try and end the long-running wars in the Eastern DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so if he can continue that sort of work, I think he'll be regarded as a success. Navina Kotua and Marithi Matiga, thank you both very much for joining us on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at esmonocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.